For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two. Main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Thanks for joining us tonight. We're less than 24 hours away from NASA's Artemis One mission from the Space Coast. The SLS rocket is there on the launch pad. The 45th Weather Squadron has weather at 80% favorable for an 8.33 a.m. launch. Listen, there is so much excitement here in Cape Canaveral in Florida at the Kennedy Space Center. You can see that countdown clock already rolling behind me there. And you might be wondering, though, why are we going back to the moon? Haven't we been there already? Well, yes, but this time it's to establish a home base on the moon so that we can explore the universe. Spaceship with the world's most powerful rocket to a new chapter in space exploration. NASA's Artemis mission is about to begin. Tonight, its next generation spaceship with the world's most powerful rocket is on the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center, ready for the test flight. sun came up over the horizon early on the morning of August 29th, I was there on the beach just south of Jetty Pier, which marked the entrance to the busy Port Canaveral on Florida's space coast. It was an incredibly beautiful sunrise with pinks and oranges and dashes of blue desperately trying to claw their way around the spots of clouds and storms making their way north along the coast. Here in the back half of Florida's wet season, storms are still regular and abundant. But as beautiful as the sunrise was, my eyes kept looking north, not east, over the pier and past the vast Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, a historic destination on its own, complete with a rich space history. But past that horizon still was Kennedy Space Center, where NASA's Space Launch System rocket, ready to fly the Artemis One mission, was being filled with propellant. I and a small contingent of friends and listeners were there to see it launch at last after years of hard work, setbacks, breakthroughs, and delays. We had lawn chairs, drinks, sunscreen, and cameras, and we were ready to see this rocket fly after what seemed like an interminable development period spanning three NASA administrations. 25 kilometers away, the rocket was coming alive. It's 65 meter long core stage, a bright orange color that it owes to the spray-on foam insulation which covers it, was full of liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, venting little bursts of gases as if stamping its feet eager to burst from the pad and get on its way. Its upper stage was being filled as well, and things were looking really good, despite a leak that had been discovered a couple hours earlier, but then resolved. But despite the rocket's eagerness, and the eagerness of all of us idly running sand through our toes, enjoying the beach waves, and letting the adrenaline of an all-night party carry us through, this launch was not to be, at least not this week. 
An errant temperature reading had appeared on the vehicle engine number three, one of the four RS25 engines that power the core stage. The engines need to be chilled down to a very low temperature before being filled with cryogenic fuel, and one of them was not dropping to the right place. An improperly chilled engine could result in aberrant performance or worse, cracks and ultimately an explosion. The teams at NASA's launch control did what NASA does, and they worked to the problem. But as the launch window ticked by and the storms in the area continued to appear, the attempt was eventually waved off. There would be no flight that day, and the next attempt could not fly until the end of the week. It seemed my hopes for a short trip to Florida were dashed, and that I would be here for a while, which gave me a lot of time to think. Hello, welcome to We Martians, I'm Jake Robbins. Visiting Florida's space coast is always a bit of a surreal experience. For a space fan, it's an incredible feeling to drive around and visit all these places whose names and images you've only seen or heard of from afar. When you've only seen the imposing vehicle assembly building through the tiny window of a YouTube livestream, it's a bit of a shock to find out that it is in fact a real building and it is in fact enormous. In the orbit of the Kennedy Space Center, you'll find an eclectic mix of people and places who seem to be both here in the presence and yet deep in the past. Today's Space Coast experience is seeing signed photographs of old astronauts in the foyers of pierside restaurants, while a recovered Falcon 9 is being lifted off an autonomous drone ship with a crane in the background. It's watching next-generation satellite constellations launch skyward, standing just a dozen meters from a Project Mercury tribute. And it's meeting a 40-year-old NASA veteran at a breakfast restaurant, and undergrads cutting their teeth on the next launch startup's tricky first flight. There is really a feeling of two places in time colliding in one location, mixing and swirling like rivers of different colors coming together. NASA had this history on full display as the rocket was prepped for launch. Coverage from the agency tapped into all the nostalgia and history it could muster to invoke this legacy of its past accomplishments. If you followed it at all, you will have heard the phrases like next giant leap or return to the moon. Heck, even the name of the program, Artemis, explicitly connects it to Apollo. Through Artemis, the twin sister of Apollo, we are returning to the moon. SLS as a reflection of history is not just a poetic device, however. The rocket is itself rooted in the past. In 2009, then brand new President Barack Obama had a report commissioned to help guide his administration on the future of human spaceflight at NASA. The space shuttle program was coming to an end after 30 years, and NASA's Constellation program, four years into its plan to take America back to the moon, was not producing results. And for a president who campaigned on hope and change, it was an inflection point. This review, commonly called the Augustine Commission, after its chair, Norm Augustine, ultimately concluded that the Constellation program would never achieve its goals, and within a few months, the Obama administration canceled it. But what happened next was a remarkably fast and decisive rebuttal from the U.S. Congress. Looking to avoid the severe economic impact to key districts in the United States where Space Shuttle and Constellation products were being built, Congress came together and in a matter of weeks, it exerted its influence over NASA. 
and only two months later, Obama announced that a new heavy lift rocket would be built. Next, we will invest more than $3 billion to conduct research on an advanced heavy lift rocket, a vehicle to efficiently send into orbit the crew capsules, propulsion systems, and large quantities of supplies needed to reach deep space. In developing this new vehicle, we will not only look at revising or modifying older models, we want to look at new designs, new materials, new technologies that will transform not just where we can go, but what we can do when we get there. And we will finalize a rocket design no later than 2015 and then begin to build it. That at And I want everybody to understand, that's at least two years earlier than previously planned. And that's conservative, given that the previous program was behind schedule and over budget. Later that year, Congress codified it into law, NASA must build a new rocket, and it would preserve in all practicable ways the existing contracts for shuttle and Constellation. And the following year, NASA answered that law with their plan, and SLS was born. This direct lineage to Constellation and Shuttle is why the vehicle looks so familiar. It's solid rocket boosters, engines, tanks, its capsule, and not to mention all the infrastructure and supply chain around it are all directly derived or even directly pilfered from the previous program. It is both a new rocket and an old one, one that exists today and yet also in the past. The debate about whether preserving these contracts and the jobs they create is the constant background hum of the entire SLS program. It's nearly impossible to talk about the rocket without someone bringing it up. Advocates will tell you that these dollars return more than their costs back to the economy and that maintaining this highly skilled workforce is of great benefit to the U.S. They'll tell you that while expensive and slow, SLS creates a unique capability that the private industry is not yet ready to provide. In short, yes, it costs money, but it's worth it. On the other side, detractors will recount that since SLS's inception over a decade ago, the commercial launch market has experienced nothing short of a renaissance. At the vanguard of this, of course, is space exploration technologies with their Falcon 9 rocket, the unequivocal darling of the rocket industry. No one launches more frequently, more reliably, or more cheaply than Falcon 9. And in the Falcon's wake, more rockets, inside SpaceX and out, like ULA's Vulcan, Relativity's Terran, Blue Origin's New Glenn, Rocket Lab's Electron, and so many more, and not to mention the Falcon Heavy and Starship themselves. The rocket industry today is quite plainly not the same as it was when Senators willed SLS into existence. This renaissance was on full display as SLS tried to fly. In the three weeks that the rocket spent on the launch pad prepping for its flight, a flight at the culmination of 12 years of development, no less than three Falcon 9s launched from the neighboring Space Launch Complex 40. And as of this writing, 41 Falcon 9s have launched this year alone, an average of once around every six days. With each new rocket entrant, each drop in price, each new cadence achieved, the technical case for SLS becomes weaker and weaker. These are important questions to be asking a government program that spends over $4 billion every year. As of today, however, the non-technical merits of the program continue to prevail. 
A perennial debate about whether jobs programs are good or not, however, in my opinion, is unproductive and missing the point, at least for a space podcast. We simply won't be able to conclude here today whether the U.S. Constitution is well adapted for space travel. But the decision to keep SLS has very real technical and programmatic implications on the rest of the human spaceflight program. And to me, therein lies the real story. Imagine you have a problem to solve, like I have to get from point A to point B and back every day. And let's say it's something like 10 kilometers between those points. For many people, the obvious solution here would be a car. A car is comfortable, it's fast, it's reasonably affordable, it's flexible, it's widely available, and it comes with some cargo capability. But now let's say we add a non-technically based constraint to your solution. Imagine you already own a horse, and someone tells you you must use that horse to solve this particular problem. Now, I know this is trite, but bear with me here. On its surface, using a horse will continue to allow you to get your job done. A horse can walk 10 kilometers, you can ride it. The requirements are met. But this decision has a ton of downstream effects. In order to keep your horse, you need to build a stable. You must also feed the horse, which incurs another expense. Sometimes the horse is ill or it needs to rest. Now there are cutouts in your schedule and you can only meet your requirements on most days. If your requirements change, you're constrained. For example, if you need to take multiple people, you may have to go back and forth many times, taking much longer. If you have to transport cargo too, you'll need a wagon. If it's too hot or too cold, you can't use the horse. If it's dark, the horse is a lot more difficult to use. All of these factors should drive you from a first principles approach to not choose the horse, even if your horse is super great and really strong. But alas, you must. And so you start investing in all the horse components you'll need, like a saddle and a stable. You set up contacts with a veterinarian and a horse food supplier. You hire a stable hand to keep the shoes fresh and the hooves clean. You settle into your new horse life and carry on solving problems with your horse. Now, this is an incredibly silly analogy, but it's what's kind of happening to NASA. 12 years ago, they were instructed to use a horse, and since then, they've been building an entire human spaceflight program around it, and it has led to some compromises. I first started really noticing these constraints when NASA began talking about their launch opportunities for Artemis 1. This first flight is a lunar mission, so theoretically, you can launch every day. The moon is always there, it's in some direction or another, so you just have to wait for the right moment in the revolution of the Earth to shoot towards it. But as we've said, this is a vehicle of compromises, the first of which is performance on the upper stage, the ICPS. Depending on the alignment of the moon's orbit and its distance, ICPS can only propel the Orion capsule to the right spot about half the time. So the daily launch opportunities slip away and become a sort of two week on, two week off kind of situation. ICPS stands for the Interim Cryogenic Propulsion Stage. It's meant to be a placeholder for the upper stage while the more capable EUS, the Exploration Upper Stage, was developed. But delays in that have led NASA to use ICPS now for at least the first three SLS missions. It's a recycled upper stage from a Delta IV heavy launch vehicle, 
and it's a compromise. Next, the Orion capsule's power storage is limited and cannot tolerate a period of greater than 90 minutes without light on its solar panels. And if a trajectory lines up where the outbound transit has the sun behind the Earth, it's going to run out of energy and die. This creates some cutouts in the 15-day period every month, maybe one to four days where the vehicle can't launch. Apollo solved this problem by using fuel cells for the power, which work just great in the dark, but Orion's service module is kind of small and it has to stay that way because the performance of its engine, which is a recycled shuttle orbital maneuvering system engine, can't push too much too far. Given the lengths of the proposed Orion flights, that much oxygen and hydrogen for a fuel cell would push the mass of the vehicle beyond the limits of its propulsion, and of course exacerbate the existing ICPS performance constraints. Then comes the propellant. In order to reuse shuttle engines and fuel tank structures, SLS has to use liquid hydrogen. It's a super high energy fuel, but the tininess of its hydrogen molecules makes for some very challenging operations. It makes leaks plentiful, as we experienced on the second attempt during my week in Florida, which ultimately drove the scrub of the launch. The hydrogen woes don't end here, however. In the event of a scrub, it takes 48 hours to detank the vehicle and prep again for another launch. And if they scrub a third time, it takes 72 hours because the propellant storage at the launch pad isn't enough to fill SLS more than about twice. Its tank is larger than the old shuttle it once supported. So trucks must be brought in to replenish it, and this takes time. So now we have a constraint of just three launches in any one-week period. And then we reach the Flight Termination System, or FTS. All rockets are required to have a way to self-destruct in the event that it flies off course. This system would be activated to prevent the vehicle from careening into populated areas, instead blowing up the rocket into a thousand or smaller pieces to fall harmlessly into the ocean. NASA must operate an FTS as a safety requirement put upon them by the launch range, which is operated by the U.S. Space Force. It's a normal requirement for all rockets, not just NASA ones. NASA must demonstrate to Space Force a redundant system that is independent of the rest of the rocket, because you wouldn't want a flight computer that failed due to a dead battery to also try and activate an FDS on the same system. Because of the size of the battery that NASA uses on SLS, the FDS system was only originally approved for use up to 20 days after leaving the VAB, the Vehicle Assembly Building. After that, the battery must be replaced and approved by Space Force again. But because of the design of the vehicle, borrowing from all that old shuttle technology, this cannot be done on the launch pad. So reapproving the FTS requires a trip back to the VAB. And all of this takes upwards of two weeks, which eats into your 20-day period pretty heavily. So, so heavily, in fact, that if SLS misses a window like it did this week, the rollback, battery replacement, FTS approval will also cause them to miss the next two-week window. They can't get back to the pad in time. Now, it's important to note that NASA has been successful in getting an extension on this 20-day limit. An initial five-day extension was approved by the Space Force while we were in Florida, and they are currently asking for a much larger extension in order to try and remove this constraint. But so far, we don't know if it will pan out. Okay, so that was a lot of technical stuff, but what's the bottom line here? Well, it means this. Instead of being able to launch every day to the moon, SLS can attempt to launch, at best, on average, 
three times every two months. It's an incredibly difficult technical constraint, and the only tool NASA has to solve it is their operations team. If you zoom out to the rest of the architecture of SLS and Artemis, you can see the cascading impacts of these non-technical constraints even more. Orion's underpowered service module engine, borrowed from the shuttle, can't take the vehicle to a low lunar orbit. And so all the other vehicles in the program, like the lunar lander and the entire Gateway space station, have to accommodate it in a higher but less useful orbit called near-rectilinear halo orbit. An inability of Boeing to produce the bigger upper stage in time has driven NASA to con contract certain components on private launchers, eliminating the need for the bigger upper stage at all, and forcing rewrites of plans and contracts for those pieces. Northrop Grumman recently had to completely rework a design and a contract for the HALO module in order to mate it with SSL's power and propulsion unit so they could launch together instead of separately, causing delays and cost increases on the component side. Orion doesn't even have the sufficient storage to return all the lunar rocks that NASA hopes to collect on their landings, which will require another architecture change to accommodate. That one remains unsolved. As these constraints impose changes on the components around them, it results in delays and cost increases. But here in the moment on launch day, it results in NASA working their butts off to bridge the gaps in the product with operational solutions. 12-hour shifts, repeating for days and days, tired employees working with the most difficult fuel imaginable with little expertise to guide them, racing against the clock with the pressure of a vice president watching over them to get this rocket off and avoid that two-month rollback delay. NASA worked hard. They've got big plans, bigger than Apollo, and they're doing their best to work with what they have. But Congress gave them a horse, and it's an interstate world now. In my downtime between launch attempts, I of course made a visit to the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center. If you've never done it, I highly recommend it. It has a new building with a Falcon Heavy side booster on display, they've got an old Dragon cargo capsule there, the Apollo 14 capsule is there, the Rocket Garden has entire rockets on display like the old Mercury vehicles and my favorite, the Delta II. And of course, the space shuttle Atlantis, whose presentation is absolutely unmatched across all of the orbiters. Across the center, you're exposed to a selection of multimedia presentations, often featuring important NASA figures, especially old astronauts. Charlie Bolden helped me launch to space on a shuttle simulator, teaching me all about the trajectory and the hardware. Neil Armstrong told me how important the first moon landing was to the world, and Eugene Cernan told me why his flight shouldn't be the last. Of course these are the people NASA would put in front of their message. Why wouldn't they? Heroes, veterans, folks who have put their careers first and done incredible work for NASA, their country, and the world. These are names that I will never forget as a space fan. But like I said, in the downtime between SLS launch attempts, that four whole days it took for the tired operations crew to turn that horse around for another attempt, I had a lot of time to think, and I was thinking about these spokespeople. It was telling to me that these old men from a time gone by, all of whom who had gone on record to discount the ideas of leveraging this burgeoning commercial sector in favor of rockets like SLS, 
they were the ones representing NASA at its premier visitor center. As we were prepping to go on the shuttle simulation ride, one of the staff on site shepherded us into a room where we would watch one of those pre-recorded videos featuring Charlie Bolden to tell us about the safety precautions of the ride, how to fasten your seatbelt, where to put your belongings, things like that. Charlie, of course, was a four-time shuttle astronaut, a Marine veteran, and the 12th administrator of NASA. He served under Barack Obama and oversaw the creation of SLS, and was not exactly a forward-thinking leader in the face of the exploding potential of the commercial market. Before the video started, the staff member advised us to listen to the video carefully, but to skip the part where Charlie told us about the bags for our belongings. She said, we don't have those bags anymore. We just haven't updated this video in a long time, and so the message is a little bit out of date. I couldn't help but chuckle at the incredible layers to that statement. The second launch attempt that week scrubbed as well. This time, hydrogen leaks plagued the launch count. A tired crew fussed with the seals, but they could not resolve them in time. Later, it was revealed that there may have even been a human error in operating an errant valve, which caused an overpressure event and broke a seal. It's the kind of operational mistake you make when you've been working nonstop for weeks and you're given a horse and asked to go to space with it. This would be it for this window. NASA concluded that there wasn't enough time to resolve these issues and make for their third attempt, showing perhaps that that already constrained three attempts per two months was actually ambitious in practice. The path forward was not clear, but what was clear is it was time for me to fly home. I and my friend, fellow podcaster and co-host for the Off Nominal YouTube show, Anthony Colangelo, talked a bunch about how to manage expectations on this trip. We knew a chance of a scrub was high, and so to avoid disappointment, we always described it as a trip to Florida to meet with listeners, visit the Space Coast, and go to the beach. Slight chance we see a rocket launch while we're there, too. And this proved smart. It was awesome to spend time meeting so many of you who all came out to our meetup and our launch parties. Visiting the site around KSC was lovely. I even saw some manatees for the first time. So the trip was absolutely worth it. But I didn't see SLS launch. And I was trying to figure out how I felt about that as I made my way back to the airport. This rocket and the Journey to Mars program, as it was then called, that was being built around it in the late 2010s, was the very first topic I covered on this podcast. I knew then that I wanted to see it fly, and I've waited seven years for the chance. In that seven years of waiting, however, the space industry has advanced. I've learned a lot. The world has moved forward. We're all different people now than we were when Charlie Bolden told us that we were on a journey to Mars and that SLS was the key. Am I still excited for this rocket after all of that? That's a pretty existential question for a space podcaster. Taking a step back and asking myself why I was excited about SLS was a tough question. Did I actually think this rocket was going to be a linchpin of the new lunar program called Artemis? Did I think its capabilities were key to NASA's success on finally getting people back to the moon? Was it a technological breakthrough that would carry on NASA's legacy of doing hard things? Or was this rocket just another in a long line of huge failed programs struggling to recreate the glory of Apollo using basically all the same pieces? One of the things that I love most about watching old Apollo launch footage is the people themselves watching the rocket. 
from the folks in the VIP seating in the stands at KSC in their 1960s tweed jackets and horn rimmed glasses, to the beachgoers lining up along the sandy coasts and the causeways in their enormous Lincoln Continentals and Volkswagen vans. These packed crowds, shielding their eyes from the sun as they gleefully watch history unfold, they always just sort of touch a heartstring for me. I want to be part of something like that. I'm too young to have seen a Saturn launch, and for a space fan, missing Apollo is the ultimate letdown. But then I had to ask myself if I too was falling for the same fallacy of living in the past while being in the present. Was I being Charlie Bolden, putting undue virtue into what was while ignoring the new ideas of today? Was I being NASA, trying to return to the moon with a horse? NASA's operational teams are working harder than ever now to get SLS back for another attempt. They're doing a hydrogen leak fix on the pad and going hat in hand to the Space Force for an extension to their FTS. It's possible they'll get it, and another launch attempt will occur in a couple weeks. It's also possible that they won't, and Halloween becomes the next chance. There's been a lot written and said about this first launch. It's a big moment for this program, which has been laboring on for over a decade to rearrange the old shuttle parts and new parts into a different rocket. The date of SLS's first flight is basically a meme at this point. But this vehicle was more or less out of date the moment it was created, somewhere in a Senate meeting room all those years ago. And it's definitely out of date today with so many options in the market for NASA. What's it going to look like in 2023 or 2024 when Artemis 2 is supposed to launch? How about 25 when Artemis 3 goes? Or 26 and 27 when the new upper stage finally comes online? NASA is planning flights to the end of this decade for SLS, which would stretch this program into its third decade from inception, somewhere around the lifespan of, well, a horse. How long can we bring forward the past of the human spaceflight program into the present? How long can the United States keep time traveling? How long before it's just a guy on a horse in the middle of the F1 track? I don't know what's in the future for SLS. If I can, I'll make the effort to go and see it fly, if only to get some closure. Or maybe I'll watch it live from my computer, over the internet. A signal that literally goes to space and back in order to get to me. A capability that Apollo viewers certainly did not have when the old steel structures of the NASA crawler transporters made those epic journeys to the launch pad, the very same one sitting underneath SLS today. But the longer this takes, the bigger the mismatch between the past and the present will be, and the more challenging it will be for NASA to close that gap with a good pad crew. And that makes me more than just a little bit worried about our eventual return to the moon. Thank you to all of you for your patience while I put this together. Sometimes an opinion piece is a lot harder for me than I expect. And huge thanks as well to all the listeners and friends who made it out to Florida to spend time with us. The rocket didn't go, but you sure all did. If you like the show and want to support me as an independent space reporter, please consider pledging on Patreon for as little as $5 per month. It gets you access to our Discord community where you can meet with other listeners and go deeper into the rabbit hole. Plus, you get advanced warning of upcoming guests and the chance to contribute questions. Check it out at wemartians.com support. 
Have a great week and add Aries Martians. We Martians is an independent, listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, on planet Earth. You can reach us at info at wemartians.com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians. Thank you.